Okay, assalamu alaikum. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. It's so nice to be back in person. And look, the impact of my travels. I made Sheikh wear a mask. <laughs> I'm so sorry. We have, um, because we're trying to be really careful about um, Sheikh's health, um, we're, we know we, we're careful about COVID. And so when, when we travel um, and we have people here, um, I'm going to wear a mask for a few days. And, uh, and so since I wanted to speak without my mask, I made Sheikh wear a mask. <laughs> so anyway, it's, you know, it's a group effort, so it, it works. Um, but alhamdulillah, um, it was really, you know, I, I honestly was like a little bit nervous about leaving like the Suli bubble um, because there's such, um, you know, a visceral palpable blessing when we're here together. And, you know, whether it's, you know, when we're in the halakas or just in the space with other people here, you know, you feel like you're doing something really divine. And so, you know, you're just like, I was nervous about leaving and kind of leaving that that bubble of blessing and you know and also it's a little bit like kind of jumping out of the nest with your wings you know and like all the stuff you've learned and trying to figure out how to apply it and you know and going back to um, in my case I went back to visit my parents in my childhood home um, and kind of visiting old haunts that I hadn't been back to for 12 years at least to my parents home and then back to Palo Alto where I grew up the last time I was there I actually didn't really even look around to see what had changed so in Palo Alto proper, um, I hadn't been, you know, legitimately back for probably almost more than 20 years. So, and you know, like the growth of Facebook and um, just, it was a completely different experience. And so, you know, it's a little bit surreal to go back home and see everything completely changed. And I was driving past, you know, familiar places, my high school, you know, friends' homes, like places I didn't even recognize anymore because it was just completely different. And I was telling some of the people here that, um, you know, when you're like kind of jumping out of the nest and trying to think about like, okay, um, you know, what, what has the last six months done in changing my perspective on things? Um, you know, what have I learned and what can I apply? It was also really shocking, um, you know, to go back and see, you know, obviously things are opening up for the first time in, in uh, you know, with after COVID in California was like literally the, I think the day after we arrived or the 15th, two days after we arrived, they, they passed, a, a, you know, thing that everything is back to normal, you know, and so people didn't have to wear masks anymore, restaurants were open, it was just like all of a sudden it was as if a pandemic didn't occur. Um, so that was sort of shocking because it's like you don't really quite know what to do, you're used to operating in a certain way and people are so excited to pretend there's no more pandemic and so it was a little bit disconcerting. Um, and it was also hard because I had not seen my parents for, um, you know, since before the lockdown, so it had been more than a year and, you know, we could definitely see the the passage of time and the and the passage of age you know and so these are these things that you really reflect upon um, and I, I think when I, I think about you know the time away you know one of the most important lessons is just how quickly things change um, and you know whether it's what you expect your childhood home to be what you expect your parents to look like um, you know act or you know feel like to you um, and just how you respond even, you know, um, it was it was a real eye-opening experience, but also um, such an incredible blessing because I think normally when you see that kind of change, it's very devastating and it's very unsettling. Um, and I think what we've learned here in this space has been re very reassuring that when you see a lot of change and when you see um, how, how fragile things are, you know, even the, the fragility of life and your parents, um, and just how um, what you expect in your mind to be there is no longer there. Um, I think unless you understand that this is all a test that 
you know, God is is the, the one thing that's stable and strong that carries you through. If you don't have that, I think it's very easy to feel, you know, extremely anxious and nervous and, and worried. Um, and it was interesting, too, because I had, you know, we're not big vacation people, so vacation has never been part of our vocabulary, as we joke here. Um, people will say the word, and I'll be like, what does that mean? <laughs> Um, and usually our vacations have always been like, you know, there's a lecture to give somewhere or some work to be done and then in some spare time maybe we'll go to the bookstore or we'll see a movie or something like that or visit with family. So the, the rest is always an afterthought. So it was very unusual for me to be in a, in a time and space where I got to actually just do what I wanted without, you know, having to worry and I chose to spend that time with friends and reconnecting with people that, you know, mean a lot to me in California. So I got to see um, Rafida, who's online here, we got to spend a few hours together, you know, and each of my friends, like, that I saw, I truly treasure and I honestly got to spend, like, serious time, you know, like when you can be with someone for two or three hours, you really get to connect and catch up and it was really beautiful. And the really interesting thing is, you know, several of those friends are not Muslim. And, but they're like among some of the most beautiful people on the planet that I know and it like really struck me I wish I could bring all of these people together you know hopefully inshallah one day when COVID is over because I feel like all of these people would love one another because they're just amazing um, but one of them um, who I spent a lot of time with and who who knows us very well um, the professor and I um, we got on a conversation about what we were doing here at Project Illumin, and she knew generally what we were doing, but I got a chance to really, you know, dig deep and tell her about what was going on. And the story, you know, she had um, gone through some hard times, and she was sharing with me how one night she had gone home to her apartment and was feeling down, very sad, not suicidal, but to the point where it was like, what is the point of my life? And, you know, I've been through a lot of difficulty, and you know, she was crying as she was telling me this story. And then she said that at that moment, she was sitting at her desk and all of a sudden a ladybug appeared. And she understood, like I didn't realize this, but you know, she was explaining to me, yeah, you know, a ladybug is sort of a symbol of life. And, you know, and, um, and that at that moment she was like, huh, you know, it's so interesting. And then she took it on her finger and took it outside and let it go. And I said, see, you know, like, and that, you know, she said that, that, like, thinking about it, it felt like, oh, maybe this was like a divine sign. And then she said to herself, no, but why would, you know, how could that be? And I said, exactly, that's what we're learning, is the idea that, you know, if you really believe, and she does believe, but I think she's of that, that you know, sense that, well, why does God care about me? You know, why would God take the time to send me a ladybug as a sign? You know, and so I had an opportunity just to tell her, you know, and, and thank God, you know, she's not Muslim, but I can be honest with her and tell her what I really think. And I said, you know, I always feel like these sorts of tests and challenges are, you know, God reaching out to you and saying, you know, trust me, think about me, come to me, you know, and, and of course God would send you. If you really believe that God is engaged in your life and knows every little thing and is with you every moment and knows how you feel, which is what we talk about here all the time, um, that of course God would send you a ladybug because that would mean something to you. Like she understood that a ladybug was a symbol of life. I didn't understand that. So I don't think God would send me any ladybugs. <laughs> but you know, it was just, um, you know, and, and I was so happy because after our conversation, she sent me a message after we left that, that, that I really made her think and that that was something that, um, that struck her and gave her an idea and so, and gave her some hope. So that, that made me happy, you know, and those are the kinds of things that I always feel like, okay, if I can share a little bit of what we're doing, even to someone who's not Muslim, 
to have them reconsider the idea of God and the closeness of God and, you know, and how there's always hope, then that to me is very, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful byproduct of what we're doing here. So, um, alhamdulillah, and I always get excited when I share with people what we're doing and, you know, I mean, I, you know, I hope I, I can be even a role model to people when I can't even really talk about, you know, I'm mindful, like when I'm not with Muslims, I'm really careful not to like, you know, be, you know, proselytizing or, you know, like, you know, I don't want to make anyone uncomfortable and try to just more um, be through like, you know, my example, I guess, or um, just normal and, you know, hopefully thought provoking. And so I was really lovely just to spend time with the women there and all of that. Um, so anyway, but the, the nut of it is, you know, I think it's really important to just always think back on these sorts of experiences and like, what you know, what did you learn from from your travel and, um, you know, how can um, you improve yourself as a person? And, and honestly, it's just like the gratitude. I think coming back from seeing the change in everything, um, reconnecting with people that I really love, um, just feeling like grateful for every little thing and just being very mindful of the passage of time and the fragility of life and to just appreciate everything in the moment and not to sweat the, you know, the little stuff that, you know, people spend so much time and energy just being focused on little things that can, you know, push them on a path of negativity and again, it's that's wasted time, you know, it's like you just want to really appreciate and value every moment that you have with the people that you love, so anyway, but and so I'm so happy to be back because I, you know, I'm, um, I, you know, also you really appreciate what you um, have every day when you don't have it, you know, and so I'm happy to come back and I'm very grateful to be here. So, alhamdulillah. And also I had the experience of being on the interactive group, which is very different. <laughs> so I got some ideas from being there. And so, um, you know, it was, it was really great. So, alhamdulillah. Anyway, okay, looking forward to another wonderful session. And thank you for everyone here that really stepped up and, and helped me, um, you know, get away because it is hard to kind of, you know, unstuck yourself from all the things that you have to do and, you know, take some time away. So um, I, I'm really grateful for the com wonderful community here, everyone who stepped up and, and took care of Sheikh and, and the dogs and everything. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> المرسل رحمة للعالمين خاتم الأنبياء أجمعين وعلى آله وأصحابه والطبع بإحسان إلى يوم الدين أمام الشح لصدر يوسر لأرض رحل أقضة من لسان يفقاقه يا رب أوكي إن شاء الله تدي سورة الحاقة أم There are uh, cumulative reports that Al-Haqqa was the surah revealed right after Surah Al-Mulk. And uh, we talked about Surah Al-Mulk. And um, interestingly, Al-Haqqa is also reported to have been revealed right before Surah Al-Ma'arish. Uh, which is interesting, but we'll leave that to uh, till later. Uh, 
So if al-haqqa is revealed after Surah al-Mulk, then in order of revelation, it would be, in terms of the number of surah, it would be in the late 70s. Maybe 77, 78, 79, something like that. Um, and it would, like Sajda and like Al-Tur and like Al-Mulk, it would be a post-Isra Surah. And, um, and a, a, a Surah that is revealed towards the end of the Meccan period as we approach the end of the Meccan period. And this makes Surah Al-Haqqa um, interesting in several regards because thematically it, it looks like it's addressing what has already been addressed in the earlier Meccan Surah. Um, the hereafter, accountability, punishment, and the fate of past nations. And it's a fairly short surah, so that would pretty much be the, uh, the, the main focus of the surah. But as we said before, that these series of short sore, there's, there's about six of them, that are revealed right before the Hijra. And like Surat al-Mulk, they seem to underscore a quintessential point, like a fundamental point. It's literally um, like um, you know you you have training for people that are going to go on a mission, and so the, and you you have a, a program of training that is nuanced and complicated, but right after right before departure or right before they are to launch, you have, you, you tell them sort of, you underscore the basic instructions. Like, you know, don't forget X, Y, Z. And, and we saw that with uh, Al-Mulk, And we see this again with al-Haqqa. Um, but as we will see, al-Haqqa is a, the, the language of al-Haqqa itself. Um, although a short surah, and although at first look it it appears to just underscore themes that were already addressed, but it um, 
it does much more than that, and it engages the the uh, uh, the uh, intellect and the psychology and the consciousness of uh, the recipients of the surah. And so, not surprisingly, we find that al-Haqqam does play a, it, it, it features in a lot of aspects of uh, Islamic theology and the trajectory of uh, Islamic thinking. So, the first thing al-Haqqa the study Quran translates it as the undeniable reality. Al-Haqqam, Al-Haqqam, Adrakam, Al-Haqqam translates it as the undeniable reality. What is the undeniable reality? And what shall apprise thee of the undeniable reality? I am sure that a lot of Quran, a lot of translations will translate al-Haqqa as instead of undeniable reality, as some word connoting the hereafter. And this is part of what we will see is very fascinating about the surah. Al-Haqqa, on one hand, on the one hand. It could be another word for the f final day, the the final judgment. We already know that the Quran had names the final day. There are many many words in the Quran that describe the final day. Uh, all of these are words that connote the final day. And they are descriptive words. So, is a word that means the day of great affliction. Asaha, the day of great tribula tri tribulations and hardship. Al-Waqi'ah, um, uh, the, the day of great unfolding. Al-Qari'ah, the day of great turbulence. So, uh, the hereafter or the final day, which is the Quran underscores time and time again, is going to be a, a day of not just a transformative day, but it is a, a day that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala consistently and constantly invites us to live our lives in light of that the inevitability of this unfolding future you know it, it's it's like 
if you are in school and I'm telling you consistently, you know, the day of graduation will come and whether you like it or not, you're going to have to leave this school and you will reach an age where you're going to have to move on. And it, this constant reminder that this is the day of the unfolding, which Allah wants us to take seriously because it is a day, a day of uh, that will test us in, in every way. And so all these descriptive words that refer to the day of judgment are, are, are understandable. But then we come to Haqqa, which is again at the one level simply a reference to the Day of Judgment. But on the other hand, in the same way that we say Al-Qari'ah is the day of great turbulence because Qara'ah means that. We come to Al-Haqqa and here we have the Day of Judgment referred to with a word that embodies numerous subtleties and layers of meaning. So al-haqqa is derived from the word haqq. The, the, and haqq means what is right, your rights are, or the truth. So if you if you have a right to something, you have a haqq. And if you are speaking the truth, you are speaking haqq. And when Allah refers to that day as al-haqqa, there is a, 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 um, a subtle grammatical point about the form that it is not called the day uh, the day of Haq but the day of Al-Haqqa and when you use that form the day of Al-Haqqa instead of the day of Al-Haqq the import of this is that this is the day in which things become due, or rights become due. So, it is the day, as the, in, in, in Arabic, So, is the day of the truth where truth becomes clearly established. The day in which um, 
not just uh, 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 in, in, in which, if you in which, in many ways, as you could say, the day in which justice becomes predominant or that justice becomes absolute. is the day in which rights are vindicated. The, the phrase is in, in, in Arabic just so for the purposes of documentation. Um, so for instance, they, you'll often read things like or in reference to the haqqa أنها ذوات الحواق من الأمور أي الأمور الصادقة الواجبة الصدق So what, what this means is by the nature of the word itself is the day you could say the day of clarity, the day where the, the journey of the various shades of confusion, the various questions, the various puzzlements, the various um, whatever plagued us in life as lacking clarity and precision that's the day of resolution. And al-haqqa, they say al-haqqa akhassu min al-haqq, meaning that when you say haqq, that means truth, um, right, justice. But al-haqqa, is more imperative, more abs more pertinent, more pressing. So to say, for instance, if you say something is haqqati as opposed to haqqi, that is, when you call something haqqati instead of haqqi, a lot of modern Arabs don't, don't know this, but I mean, this is, we're not talking about modern Arabic, we're talking about classical uh, Quranic Arabic. Haqqati uh, is something that is undeniably yours. Not just your right, but imperatively and absolutely so. Also, when you say al-haqqa, it implies this is the day yahqqu kulla muhaqqin fi dinillah, which means this is the day in which every corruption, kulla muhaqq fi dinillah means every corruption will in Allah's religion or in or every obfuscation, every uh, 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 attempt to deform something, 
attempt to lie about something, attempt to corrupt something, is addressed. Okay, so, and, and we haven't, I mean, we could sit here and talk about what all the different connotations that are raised by Haqqa for a while, because, for instance, you could say, if you're talking to someone and you say, Haqqaqtuhu, uh, means you, I've beaten. So when you say Yawm al also means the day in which every um, uh, uh, arrogant, haughty, um, despotic tyrant will be beaten. So it's a, it's a remarkable expression. And it, it it says al-haqqa, mal-haqqa wa ma'adraka mal-haqqa. So, the haqqa, what is the haqqa, and how would you know what is the haqqa is? This raised a um, a deeper question when Allah says al-haqqa mal-haqqa wa ma'adraka mal-haqqa is Allah simply referring to what we see in surah al-haqqa itself called uh, what the ayah number? Wait, hold on. Yeah, fifteen, where Allah calls that day al-waqa'ah. Al-waqa'ah means the day, the day of the event. So is Allah when Allah says al-haqa, mal-haqa, ma'adraka, mal-haqa? Is Allah simply referring to al-waqa'ah? Or is the openings of Surah Al-Haqqa alerting us to something beyond that? Linguistically, if you're if you're reading this surah without any context, any context you would say, well, there is no, nothing in the language itself that tells me that Al-Haqqa exclusively refers to the Day of Judgment. But Al-Haqqa could, could refer to the inevitability or the necessity of Ihqaq Al-Haqqa the necessity of a process that ends in the upholding of haqqaiq, the upholding of truth or facts, the upholding of al-haqq, and the upholding of hukuk, the upholding of rights. So, you could, on the one hand, 
It say yes, it's referring to the final day. It's referring to al-waqi'ah. It's referring to al-qari'ah. But on the other hand, linguistically, it could be referring to not not simply a a um, it, it could have a normative connotation, and the normative connotation is that you must end up with ihqaq al-haqaiq, ihqaq al-haq, and ihqaq al-hukuq. Al-haqaiq, al-haq, al-hukuq. As we said, al-haqaiq are the factual truth. Al-Haq is the truth, justice itself. And Al-Hukuq are rights. So this is precisely why I mean, you can find a lot written about this in the Islamic tradition, but the the ones who um, who as we will see uh, did the most with it uh where within the Sufi-esque um, orientation where often they read as al-haqqa as a dual reference to the here to the day of judgment but often citing the hadith of Umar ibn Khattab hold yourself to account before you are held to account. They say Al-Haqqa is on a similar, in a similar vein. It is a reminder of the imperative of having a process within your life that ends in individual illumination and individual enlightenment. A day where falsehood dissolves. And as we will see, they, they go into much greater detail uh, about this. Um, but a day in which you are dissolving the lies, the falsehoods, the deceptions that you live plaguing your life with, or that plague your life throughout, that all stem from the corruption of the ego. And if the ego is corrupted, you know, then your perceptions are corrupted. And if your perceptions are corrupted, then your consciousness is corrupted. And if the consciousness is corrupted, then, of course, the intellect doesn't work the way it should, and the heart doesn't respond the way it should. But in the similar vein, in, in my view, while the Sufi asked the Fasir clearly see al-haqqa or ma adrakam al-haqqa or al-haqqa al-haqqa or ma adrakam al-haqqa as 
as as a haqqa as a as a it carries the normative connotation of individual transformation and individual enlightenment. If you look at the language and the balance of the surah, as we will see, and you think of everything we said about the that that term al haqqa that. Um, Al-Haqqa akhassum min al-Haqq, that Haqqa is more pressing than Haqq, than Al-Haqq, uh, uh, the word for truth or for, for what is right. Um, or that Al-Haqqa is the wat al-Hawaq, or that Al-Haqqa tahiq al-Umur, or that so everything we said about al-haqqa and you go back to linguistically linguistically when you talk about al-haqqa then you talk about ihqaq al-haqaiq ihqaq al-haqq wa ihqaq al-huquq understanding it simply as either referring to the day of judgment or to an individual transformation and enlightenment, I think is narrowing the scope of the expression needlessly. Because if we're going to talk about the imperative of ihqaq al-haqaiq and ihqaq al-haqq and ihqaq al-huquq, then that's not accomplished simply at an individual level. If your context is corrupted, if, if your society is corrupted, regardless of the amount of enlightenment that you individually can accomplish, there is a cap, there is always a cap on how much you can achieve. Put it bluntly, regardless of how just you are as an individual, if you live in an unjust society, the inevitable result is that your justice is capped. You can only go thus far. And in fact, the thus far, the limit on how far you go, um, can often be entirely self-defeating. Because quite often, if the idea of al-haqqa wal-haqqa ihqaq al-haqq wa ihqaq al-huquq wa ihqaq al-haqaiq as we said the center of that within the sufi escalator is to say to overcome selfishness right sufi escalator focuses on you can't be a selfish human being. Selfishness defeats everything. But if I overcome my selfishness, what is it that is required of me Islamically? Okay, want for others what you would want for yourself. 
Okay. So I want for others what I want for myself. But if I live in, in an unjust society, I have severe limits on how I can help others. I have severe limits on what I can say or not say about the truth. I have severe limits on al-amr al-ma'roof and nahan al-munkar. I have severe limits on anything that can possibly clash not with institutions of power, but even individuals of power. So if a woman comes to me and says, you know, there is a powerful man who is sexually harassing me, I can't help her. In an unjust society, Islamically, I'm supposed to help her, but I can't. Because in an unjust society, I will be destroyed. If someone comes to me, as happens in unjust societies all the time, and says, you know, X, Y, Z, this corrupt person has thrown me out of my house and, ha, you know, is persecuting me. And there is, I'm always constrained. So the Sufi-esque approach of saying focus on yourself individually in the path of enlightenment, I understand it as a process towards something. But it, if it's not towards something, i.e. towards a just society, then by definition it is flawed and deformed. So what? You're an enlightened person, you understand everything, but you can't speak, you can't do. You effectively live in a prison. How is that Islamic? So. Yes, understanding al-haqqa, mal-haqqa, wa ma'adraqa mal-haqqa. Sufis understood it as a call for individual liberation. And I respect that. But it is only getting us halfway. Traditional tafsir understood it as a simple reference to the hereafter. Wait till the hereafter. Sufi Tafsir understood it as individual liberation. But both are flawed. Because it is not about individual liberation or just the hereafter. It is the call, the imperative of everything that has to do with and these three these three and that is not possible unless we go beyond the individual to the social imperative of al-haqqa so what is al-haqqa saying look at this just Three words, I mean, three ayat in very simple words. Where it says, Al-Haqqa, Mal-Haqqa, Ma'adraqa, Mal-Haqqa. As 
there is a in, I, in the tradition there's a story that um, in the um, it, it's been re- reported mostly as someone was uh, what's his name um, Al-Hajjaj Al-Hajjaj was this governor in the Amawit period who was a horrible tyrant and so on so um, there, there's an imam who Al-Hajjaj anytime anyone would say anything critical of the Amawid Khalifa they would probably be arrested and um, and tortured or killed or whatever so every time Al-Hajjaj would pray in the Damascus mosque and this fellow would lead prayer, he would read Al-Haq. Eventually, Al-Hajjaj got it. He understood, said, why is it that you read Al-Haq or Ma'adraqa Al-Haq? And Imam said, because I, I, I love the surah. So Al-Hajjaj said, read some other surah. <laughs> the, the, the Imam again read Al-Haqqa. So the story goes is that he's arrested and as he's tortured, he kept repeating again, Al-Haqqa, Al-Haqqa, Ma'adraqam Al-Haqqa, 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 that he was tortured to death. Uh, and he kept just repeating that. And it went down in history. Everyone understood that what this Imam was doing was saying, where are Al-Haqq? Where are Al-Haqqaiq? Where are the Haqq? Because when you say al-haqqa, it's like saying, it's like if I start out my a poem by saying, what rights are due? Have you thought about what rights are due? Have you really thought about what rights are due? And yes, we can, as the traditional tafsir often do, say, well, you, you know, it's, it's, God is talking about the hereafter. But till we get to them hereafter, are we supposed to simply postpone thinking about Haqqa? Ma yahiq? Or Zawat al-Hawaq, as they say? It, there is also, I've, uh, I couldn't find it yet, um, where I read this, but um, in my notes on when you write a book in academia, you end up you know taking far more notes than what ends up making it in the book. That that's that always is the case because you, you can't put everything. And so in the notes that I was taking on the rebellion book, uh, one of the notes was. The a, a rebellion in the Abbasid era, the rebels, their rallying cry was simply one word, al-haqqa, al-haqqa. And what was meant by it is that we've been treated unjustly. So, but it was within the Arabic of the time, it was understood that if you're going to say al-haqqa, you're not talking about the final date, you're talking about the rights that are due to you.
Um, anyway, but it didn't make it to the Rebellion book, but it's in the notes. Okay. So, Let's look at the translation first. Samud and Ad died, uh, denied Al-Qari'a, the study Quran translated it as calamity, and what is meant by Al-Qari'a or the calamity is the hereafter. As for Samud, they were destroyed by the study Quran says by the overwhelming Al-Taghiya. And as for Ad, they were destroyed by a howling, raging wind, Birihin Sarsarin Atiyah. Okay. So, first we know that. Um, Samud are the people of the Prophet Salih and Ad are the people of the Prophet Hud and Samud Again, the language here is 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 fascinating. It is often pointed out that Thamud were people of ahli um, ma'qalil, people who did who um, their resources in water were limited. And we are told that they are destroyed by Taghiya. And on the other hand, were people who had a lot of, and, and you remember that water in, in old societies was always a sign, and maybe even to, in our day, always a sign of wealth. Um, you know, the only exception to that is in the modern age when, we, when oil was discovered and changed the scales of things. But anyway, so Ad had an abundance of water, Samud did not have an abundance of water. And we are told that Ad is, is destroyed by Rih Sarsarin Ati. In the traditional Tafsir, you don't find a lot of variety in in discussing this. They'll, they'll simply say what you would expect them to say that um, Thamud were destroy destroyed um, by a cataclysmic event that the Qur'an just calls a taghiyah in this context, and 
the ad was destroyed by another cataclysmic event that the Quran des describes or calls Rih Sarsar and Atiyah in this context. But in In, in, in tafsir or in commentaries on the Quran, not necessarily just Sufi-esque, but um, even within tafsir that are could be described as more traditional, but deeper in outlook, like Razi, for instance, uh, or tafsir al-Mataridi as well would would fall in that same category. They pause at the word at the 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 expression Tagya that destroys Thamud, and and let, let's let's first start with the Tagya that destroys Thamud. Uh, a Tagya is anything that. Is overwhelming because it goes to excess. So, it, it, it is anything that is overwhelming and that is also corrupting at the same time. So you find in a lot of the tafsir that they, they look at the fact that Thamud were people of modest resources. And if you remember the test for Thamud is that although they had limited water resources, so water was extremely valuable to them, they were asked by God to share their water with a camel, with a test which they ultimately failed and they ultimately killed the camel. But what is, a lot of commentaries say that when a lot, when the Quran says they were destroyed by Taghiyah that what, it is not just the cataclysmic event that ultimately destroys them but that what precedes that cataclysmic event is that they suffered in the in the language of, of a lot of these tafsir is suffered under hujubu jahl that their selfishness their greed their lack of um um uh, um charitable character ultimately made them a thoroughly ignorant people and a 
people that were fundamentally um, um, uh, had very little use for thought, for knowledge, for inquiry, um, and that lived from one darkness to another darkness. And instead of Allah saying, referring in Surah Al-Haqqa to the cataclysmic event, Allah chose a word like Al-Taghiyah, which means, which could mean a cataclysmic event, but could also mean a whole process of ignorance. When it came to Ad, the Rih Sarsar in Atiyah, the Rih Sarsar in Atiyah is very cold wind. And, and with Ad, we are told that this cold wind, a noisy cold wind, freezing noisy wind. سخرها عليهم سبع ليال وثمانية أيام حسومة فطرق قوم فيها صرع كأنهم أعجاز نخل خاوية that they were subjected to this wind for seven nights and eight days uninterrupted so seven nights and eight mornings until they all died and became like the trunks, the hollow trunks of tree, palm trees. With Ad, their sins were of a different nature. They, their sins were the sins of um, excess. Uh, they they so they were promiscuous. They had an excess of everything. They lived in a, a, in an, a, an excess of luxury, and their excess of luxury, in turn, led them to an excess of zandaka, meaning that they adopted more and more um, fantastical ideas about God. While, while the offense of Thamud was that they simply killed the camel and refused to share, the offense of Ad is um, how do how do I put it? Um, um, indulgence, overindulgence, overindulgence in material things, overindulgence in intellectual things, overindulgence in spiritual things. Basically, living feeling entitled. And the feeling of entitlement led them to take God for granted 
and start developing more and more fantastical ideas about um, God and who God is and etc etc and as as a result they are destroyed through the very means of wind which is normally thought of as a source of blessing with and with an overabundance an excess which is normally thought of as a source of blessing but it turns out to be the source of their destruction okay so, do we understand this simply in the literal sense, or do we understand this allegorically? And especially in the Sufi-esque tradition, this part, the, the, the description about the destruction of, um, uh, the, the destruction of Ad is understood both literally and allegorically. So, The, the surah starts with al-haqqa, and they say al-haqqa is tajalli al-haqiqa al-ahadiyya, that it, it is the, the obvious truth that luxury and being spoiled, especially when it came to Ad, made them unable to see al-haqiqa, tajalli al-haqiqa al-ahadiyya, that unable to see the, the single obvious truth. And is there significance? They, they pause at Allah saying that they were exposed to it seven nights and eight days. And they say, why would Allah tell us that they were exposed to this loud, searing, cold wind for seven nights and eight days until they became like empty trunks, uh, uh, bark, uh, empty tr uh, trunks of palm trees. And they understand this in the following allegorical way. They say that Allah is alerting us to seven deadly sins as deadly as the loud searing winds. <clears throat> the seven are Al-Ghadab, Al-Shahwa, Al-Hiqt, Al-Hasad, Al-Bukhl, Al-Gubn, Al-Ajab. So these are Al-Ghadab, anger, inability to control your temper. Al-Shahwa, um, being covetous. Shahwa is when, you know, not be anything that you consume in excess, whether food or or sex. Normally it it refers to sex, but it could include food as well. Al Hukd is spite when you're constantly thinking of what others have um Spite, yeah, it's the best term. 
الحسد is envy البخل is miserliness stinginess الجبن is cowardliness and العجب is or العجب that is arrogance being haughty fond of yourself and uh, these seven when they and then they have a discussion about what the eight days what the eight days are but I don't want to get into it because it will take us a long time so these seven would render a human being hollow from the inside like a hollow tree trunk so you exist physically but spiritually you're dead and they will often they they they, they don't see it as coincidental that Allah begins with al-haqqa mal-haqqa ma'adraka mal-haqqa and they don't see it as a, a or rather rephrase that they see it as extremely significant that when it came to Thamud, Allah simply said that they were destroyed by a Taghiyah, meaning, you know, hard-headedness and, and ignorance and selfishness of the type that is not very sophisticated. They, they just don't want to share. It's mine, I you know, and I don't have a lot to share and water is rare anyway. And that, well, that type of, of lack of charity of character will destroy you, like al-Qaghiyah would destroy anyone. When it comes, however, to add that the Rihan Sarsar and Atiyah is an allegory to the destructive impact of these seven, al-Ghadab, al-Shahwa, al-Hiqd, al-Hasad, al-Bukhl, al-Jubn, well, Ajab, that the um, anger, uncontrolled desire, spite, envy, miserliness, cowardliness, and arrogance. And that these sins leave the soul as if emptied in the body, as if a, a, the bark of a tree that has been hollowed and emptied. And so, if you have the sins of Ad, as they, as in Sufi literature often, and, but even, I found this even in, in, um, in Ibn Qayyim, who's not a Sufi, obviously, but even Ibn Qayyim talks about the sins of Ad, um, that your ability not just to see al-haqqa as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala but to see al-haqqa as the rights that are due to people or to see the difference between al-haqq wa ghayr al-haqq or to see al-haqaiq from ghayr al-haqaiq it's a fool's errand it's impossible if you suffer from these moral defects, then so all 
to um, getting on the, the straight path is to work to is is to cleanse these defects within within the self. And we'll, we'll see how this even is developed further in the surah, in this reading. That rhetorical question where Allah asks the, the Meccans or asks the Prophet, do you see any remnants of these people? This is eight. Uh, Yeah, study Quran uses the same word, remnants of these people. In Sufi Ask literature in particular, they take that rhetorical question and say, this is directed at you. Allah is, is saying, have you considered how these types of moral defects render people, leave people? I'm going to go a little bit and then give you my take on, on all of this. Okay. Okay. Okay, so up to 17. So in 9, the, we have a specific reference to the Pharaoh. And, but, وَجَاءَ فِرْعَوْنُ but it doesn't just say the Pharaoh, but it says, and those before him. And, we pause at, again, these words. Because, and Mu'tafika, uh, how the, uh, subverted and those subverted and the study Quran says and those subverted brought inequity you could just read this and pass without paying attention why does it say and those before and why does it use that expression? Well, Mu'tafika is anything that brings falsehood and corruption. In a, in a, it literally, first we say that it is anything that brings uh, falsehood and corruption. So, 
why wouldn't the Quran be more specific? Why would it simply talk about those who subvert and bring injustice and inequity? Again, when we read the Quran, we know that every word is used intentionally. That there are no just, you know, haphazard usage. Then it says, It doesn't specify the Rasul. It just says they disobeyed Rasul, the, the Rasul of their God. And what, what was the consequence of that? They were taken by Rabia. Rabia is... The study Quran says devastating blow, but Ahzat al-Rabiyah is not a devastating blow. It's um, um, when, when you uproot something because of its own weaknesses. So if I say... <coughs> means the water has risen to the point that it is beyond control. Or if I say or the same word riba comes from it. It's an excess. So when you say it means that they were destroyed by their own means, what destroyed them is themselves, or the, their own sins destroyed them. Then it says, So when there was, and we carried you, when there was a flood, Okay, so here it sounds like what the Quran is referring to is the flood of Nuh and that you survived the flood of Nuh and all of you are the descendants, at least all of you that came from the Near East. Um, that area of the world, all of you are the descendants of those that were saved in Noah's ship. Okay, but it doesn't name the Prophet Noah salam. And the language here is <clears throat> sounds expansive and possibly ambiguous until we come to in verse 12 so that attentive ears may take heed so traditional tafsir approach first Traditional tafsir say, okay, well, so Fir'aun 
and those before Fir'aun, um, they did a lot of falsehood, they disobeyed their prophets, so they were destroyed, and then there was the flood of Nuh, and then after the flood of Nuh, and basically learn from the Pharaoh and, and the flood of Nuh. So traditional tafsir, it's the same again. But what the traditional tafsir don't answer is why the language is the way it is in Surah Al-Haq. We've already encountered the use of language and what appears to be the same themes, but the language renders in different nuances of meaning in Surah Al-Mulk. And we see again in Surah Al-Haqqah the same dynamic. Beyond the what I call the, what I'm calling the traditional tafsir. So we take the tafsir that focused on the use of the specific language and then we'll leave my gloss till, till the very end. So first, Fir'aun, in the same way that Ad is, first, Thamud is understood with, with a special focus on what the nature of their sins was were. And Ad was a special focus on the several the the seven moral faults that leave a human being like a hollow body a body without a moral conscience Fir'aun is always understood as a symbol for the tyranny of the self so in especially in Sufi Tafasir, they always talk about Fir'aun and Nafs. Fir'aun is universally, in Islamic theology, a symbol of tyranny. But especially in non-traditional Tafasir, Tafasir that don't rely on Naql, on uh, just simply transmitted reports, they focus on al-mu'tafika or al-mu'tafikat and the meaning of al-mu'tafikat and the meaning of al-khati'a in this context. So, Fir'aun, the symbol of tyranny and every Fir'aun before Fir'aun and as Ibn, as Ibn Arabi says, and every Fir'aun after Fir'aun, so every Fir'aun till the, till the end of days. The presence of a Fir'aun individually or collectively leads to Al-Mu'tafika. And al-mu'tafika is, or al-mu'tafikat, are al-qulub al-munakkasa an qubul al-haq, that the, that type of tyranny of desire, 
the unrestrained ego, inflated ego of self-importance. What it does to the soul is that in direct proportion to the inflation of the ego is the diminution in the soul. The soul becomes broken and cowardly. But it is not just your soul that becomes broken and cowardly, but the soul of everyone around you that becomes broken and cowardly. The more you are a pharaoh, the more you, your tyranny causes ittifak for the souls of others. Ittifak means it. They they literally. Uh, uh, what is that expression? You you uh, shrink inside because. Your ego is so big, there's no space. So the ego of others will either have to clash with you, and then it becomes a matter of who has more power to get their will through, or the ego of others has to shrink to give you space. And as the the egos of others shrink to give you space, The khati'ah, meaning, khati'ah is a consistent inability, a consistent and persistent inability to see the truth or a failure to see the truth on a consistent and persistent basis. Because, on the one hand, you have an inflated ego, on the other hand, you have shrunken egos, the dynamic is corrupted. So what never can never be pursued in this is the truth. Although the Sufi asked Tafsir, don't emphasize this, but I think it is obvious to emphasize this that it is not just the failure to give yourselves its rights or others their rights uh, on the basis of a family, but as the Quran clearly says, on the basis of society. If you have a pharaoh in society, or you have a society plagued by pharaohs, so a society that doesn't have a way of restraining pharaohs, So, a society in which if you're rich, you get your will. If you're wealthy, you call your terms. If you're rich, there's a process that applies to you that doesn't apply to others. What's going to happen to all those around you? Their egos will shrink. And they will become a mu'tafika. And if they become a mu'tafika, al-khati'ah is inevitable. At a, at a social level, justice becomes impossible to achieve. 
the most concrete effect of this is hypocrisy. Pharaohs breed mifak. Pharaohs breed hypocrisy. The existence of a pharaoh means the existence of hypocrisy. No one can be truthful in the presence of a pharaoh. Because truth hurts. It's very dangerous. So you learn to speak in double languages and triple languages. You learn to smile when you want to frown. You frown when you want to smile. You, language doesn't mean what it means. Everything is, is, is geared to appease the Pharaoh. <clears throat> now, so when, as, and notice here, I'm just skipping 10 for now. So this is in traditional tafsir understood as a reference to the Prophet Muhammad salam. But in Sufi-esque tafsirs especially, it's understood as tughyan ma hubb dunya wal that it is the flood that it speaks about is that the flood of losing perspective about this world and falling in love with material things and being in love with your own whims. And when Allah says Hamanakum Fijariya in Sufi Astafasir, they often understand Safina Timnaja that um, the the salvation, the 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 ship that has the promise of saving people in this flood. In Sufi Astafasir, they're often referred to it as a Sharia, but what they mean by Sharia here is not the, the technical laws of Sharia, but the moral ethical laws of Sharia. That it is that the, the gift that Allah provides that, ha, that still holds hope for people. If you are plagued by the sins of Ad, and if you're plagued by the sins of Pharaoh, and that if these sins have made you lose all moral perspective and become overcome by the flood, there is only one hope for you, and that is to reattach yourself to Sharia, meaning that the the ethical path of Allah and I'll, you, you'll see why all of this even becomes even more and more important okay now fa'asa no this is verse 10 fa'asa rasula rabbihim fa'akhadhahum akhdatan rabiya so what is the rasul they so they disobeyed uh, they disobeyed the Rasul 
And as a result, they were overcome by their own sins. In traditional tafsir, they say, well, this is a clear reference to a disobeying the Prophet Musa salam, or a reference to the Prophet Nuh salam. they disobeyed the Prophet. In Sufi as tafsir, they say, no, the, the reason Allah doesn't name a Prophet is Allah wants you to entertain a deeper possibility. And the deeper possibility is the Rasul that has been disobeyed here is Al-Aql Al-Hadi Ila Al-Haq. That Al-Aql Al-Hadi Ila Al-Haq translates as the intellect that guides you towards the truth. But here they don't mean a philosophical intellect. They, they mean Aql al-Hikmah, the, the, if you will, spiritual intellect or the intellect leading to wisdom, um, meaning the inner reason, inner source of reason within you that tells you that being a pharaoh is wrong, hypocrisy wrong, is wrong, and mu'tafika the type of deceptions and lies that result from living with a pharaoh or being a pharaoh is wrong. That is the inner Rasul that is disobeyed and that ultimately leads to Arabia. So let's take a step back again. Why do the traditional tafsir understand it this way? Why do the Sufi esque tafsir understand it this way? The Sufi esque tafsir, Allah says, Allah in Surah Al Haqqa uses language that is intentionally leaves open the possibilities of meaning. In traditional tafsir, they say, well, they, we understood, we sort of understand what it's referring to. In Sufi Astafazir, they say, no, if elsewhere, when Allah wanted to say Nuh, he said Nuh. When Allah wanted to say the Pharaoh or, you know, wanted to say things very specifically, said so. But here in Surah Al-Haqqa, and of course, I tend to understand, to agree with the Sufi Astafazir, but I take it beyond where the Sufi Astafazir take it. Meaning that in Surah Al-Haqqa, if you understand it, especially at the time of revelation, and especially that it comes after Surah Al-Mulk, and considering the themes of Surah Al-Mulk, and the themes of all the Surah that have been revealed, leading up to the Isra, and right after the Isra, Surah Al-Haqqa is delivering nothing short of what the big title of Surah Al-Haqqa is, which is Al-Haqqa. What is due? The Haqqaiq, the Haqqaq, and Al-Haqq. So, the truth and justice and rights. And if it's going to address these issues, the language that 
it talks about what appears to be common themes as the Sufis understand it, is they're absolutely right. It is expansive and it is language that opens possibilities of interpretation and a deeper moral insight would understand why this language is there, but it cannot stop at the level of individual enlightenment. Surat al-Haqqa is clearly talking about not just the individual, but beyond the individual. What it would be that al-Haqq and al-Hukuq and al-Haqqaq for these three to be requires a social dynamic and not just an individual dynamic. So, Tom, in Najanaha Nakum Tazkiratan Wataya, Uzulun Wariya, study Quran so that we might make it a reminder for you and the attentive ears might take heed. And when Najanaha Nakum Tazkira, we encountered the, the usage of Zikra or Tazkira or Zakirin in the Quran quite often uh, referring to either the Quran itself as Zikra or to belief or the, the necessity of belief as Tazkira as a reminder. What's unusual or different in Surah Al-Haqqa is وَتَعَيَّهَا أُذْنُ The reference to أُذْنُ attentive ears. Why attentive ears? And what, what, what does that mean to say um, of course, as you would probably expect, that traditional tafsir don't pause at this very long. They're, they will often uh, note that um, a hadith reported from the Prophet والسلام, that the Prophet tells Imam Ali that in reference to that the Prophet tells Ali, I pray to Allah that this would be your ears, Ali. And that uh, Ali ibn Khattab, uh, Ali, Ali ibn Abi Talib responds or comments on this by saying that since this since the prophet made this dua i whatever i heard from the prophet i never forgot and so in the the implication at least in traditional tafsir that um, is equal to um, a, um, an attentive person uh, and equal to a good memory. 
but there isn't much elaboration. What you you find in more either Sufi esque tafsir that often comment that Uzun al is Uzun al Fitra is the 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 inst the the ears of innate instinct within a person. Uh, that's one trend that you find often in Sufi esque. Um, literature, but in more rational, rationalistic tafsir like a Razi um, or Zamakhshari, uh, they will say that al al here and تحفظ ما يجب حفظه بالتذكرة والتفكر فيه ولا تضيعه بترك العمل. What this means is that الأذن الواعية is one careful listening that you you know human beings don't listen to everything carefully. So it's conscientious, careful listening. Then beyond careful listening is the, the effort to remember what you've heard and reflecting upon what you've heard and then what, what you've learned translates into action. means that it it must necessarily translate into action. And in this context, they often refer to a hadith uh, attributed to the Prophet um, um, which roughly would translate as for meaningful life or meaningful living is in a scholar who speaks and conscientious, conscientious listeners who listen. So you need the duality of good scholars and good listeners. And so that hadith obviously bolsters the, the, the spirit. So, but we go back and say, notice that Udun Unwaya here is used before, like a, 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 to close off a section or to complete a section in the Surah Al-Haqqa. So it starts out with Al-Haqqa rights that are due, accountability, the necessity of accountability, the necessity of al-hukuq, al-haq, and al-haqaiq, the necessity of rights, truth, and justice. And 
takes you into the people who are overcome by taghiyah, by injustice, tyranny against the self. It takes you to the people who were corrupted by excess and the their destruction was whether the Sufis are right that uh, the seven sins but the, their destruction by the methods of their own excess is at least what we can all agree upon. And then it takes you to the, the Pharaoh, the, the epitome of tyranny and the type of deception and corruption that is caused by the type of tyranny in Mu'tafikat al-Khati'ah, hypocrisy and lies and even Tafikat Khati'a could even be uh, deception and backstabbing could fit within Mu'tafikat Khati'a. And also Rasul, whether the Rasul is the revealed message of the messenger, the revelation, or the inner Rasul within that conscience that God placed in all of us that tells us you know so many of us will convince ourselves that tyranny is okay that injustice is tolerable that arrogance is sustainable that um, selfishness is okay but innate in our conscience something that you find even in 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 the pure conscience of a child or even in the way that dogs or animals react to injustice that tells you that innately we know that all these are wrong but it is not it, it is no coincidence that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then comes and flags to us it's exactly as the Prophet said you could have the best scholars in the world and these scholars could spell out all you know perfect theories of everything and say all the wonderful but if you don't have conscientious listeners listeners that reflect upon what they hear and that translate what they hear into action the equation falls apart. Then, then there, there is no haqqa. Then the whole dynamic of speaking about the haqqa becomes uh, nonsense. Okay. So then, Surat al-Haqqa transitions to فَإِذَا نُفِخَ فِي الصُّورِ نَفْخَةً وَاحِدًا So now, the the blow uh, as it uh, the study Quran says the single blast is blown in the trumpet so the trumpet of the end now we have the final day وَشَقَّتِ السَّمَاءِ فَهِيَ يَوْمَ إِذٍ وَاهِيَةٍ 
translation first uh, 16 the sky shall be rent asunder for that day it shall be frail that's very literal okay if you were not a believer I feel that this one ayah could make you a believer because what it's saying is this sky right now it appears solidly put together did I write that quote that this sky is fi suratin muhtama that it is tight it is meticulous it is well measured and it sustains life but then with the the end fa iza hiya wa hiya ay mustarkhiya meaning that the the tight's measurements that sustain the sky will be undone it's like literally you come and you cut off the threads or you undo the threads and then the nature of that sky of the heavens that surround you will be something that we don't recognize but it is necessarily connotes turbulence. To describe it that way, it's only the one who has made it so tight, so well measured in the first place, who would be able to know how the sky would look when it's not so tightly measured, would be. It is a remarkable expression for either it is not the, the medieval image of the sky falling upon the earth, which was the, the, but literally Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who knows that how, how exceptional it is to have a sky that envelops the earth and that sustains life in it. And what it means for that to be undone. Okay. وَالْمَلَكُ عَلَىٰ أَرْجَائِهَا وَيَحْمِلُ عَرْشَ رَبِّكَ فَوْقَهُمْ يَوْمَئِذٍ ثَمَانِيَةٍ Study Quran says, And the angel shall be at, the, at, his, at its sides, and that day eight shall carry the throne of thy Lord above them. Okay, now, so, so there are angels that will be, whatever the image that, the angels that will be standing on the sides. But the throne carried by eight. And Imam al-Hasan says in what became one of, if, if, a statement that influenced a lot of tafsir, 
says لا أدري ثمانية أشخاص أو ثمانية آلاف أو ثمانية صفوف أو ثمانية آلاف صف Allah doesn't tell us eight what eight angels eight thousand eight lines of angels or even whether angels or not or eight thousand lines of possibly so eight carrying the arsh now in the old in old times there occurred a, a debate in that the mushabbiha is a theological sect in islam said this means that Allah will come upon a throne and that throne is carried by eight. And as we said, we don't know what the eight are, but whatever. But this poses a problem in Islam. In the Bible, this type of imagery, especially in the Old Testament, is not unusual. But in Islam, the idea that God would be carried upon a throne is seriously problematic. Although I've heard modern Muslims in doing Tafsir Surat Al-Haqqa, I've heard it in the Islamic Center where a guy just said it, oh yeah, God is going to be carried on a throne of eight angels, which is me. So here's a, a quote from a Razi I'll read it in Arabic first and I'll, I'll paraphrase it. وقال لا يمكن أن يكون المراد منه أن الله جالس في العرش وذلك لأن كل من كان حاملا للعرش كان حاملا لكل ما كان في العرش فلو كان الإله في العرش للازم للملائكة أن يكونوا حاملين لله تعالى وذلك محال لأنه يقتضي احتياج الله إليهم وأن يكونوا أعظم قدرة من الله تعالى كل ذلك كفر صريح فعلمنا أنه لابد فيه من التأويل فنقول السبب في هذا الكلام هو أنه تعالى خاطبهم بما يتعارفونه فخلق لنفسه لنفسه بيانا يزورونه وليس أنه يسكنه ف فما يديني جيفز اكزامبل فمثلا قال الله تعالى انه جعل الله تعالى في ركن البيت حجرا وهو يمينه في الارض اذ كان من شانه ان يعظموا رؤسائهم بتقبيل ايمانهم وجعل على على العباد حفظه ليس لان النسيان يجوز عليه سبحانه ولكن هذا هو المتعارف فكذلك لما كان من شان الملك الملك إذا أراد محاسبة عماله جلس إليهم على سرير ووقف الأعوان حوله أحضر الله يوم القيامة عرشا وحضرت الملائكة وحفت به لا لأنه يقعد عليه أو يحتاج إليه بل لمثل ما قلنا في البيت والطواف So what he's saying is actually something if only modern Muslims would understand it would have some good impact on them is that 
Allah, for instance, made the Kaaba and said, circumambulate around the Kaaba and made a hajar, a rock, in the side of the Kaaba on the right side. And that in, in another part that I didn't re- read where, he say, where it says, and people kiss the rock. All of this is not because Allah is present in the Kaaba or not because kissing the rock means anything. But it is for Allah to introduce symbolisms that human beings can relate to. Because in the same way that kings present rings and people kiss the ring of the king as a sign of humility, Allah presented to human beings things that they can relate to and understand. So, he's saying that if it was the case that there are angels carrying the throne and Allah is sitting upon the throne, this is a huge problem. Because it would mean that these angels are strong enough or perhaps even stronger than Allah so that they can carry Allah. And it would mean that Allah needs to be seated on a throne and be carried forward, which is all kufr sarih, which is all just simple kuf. You can't, you can't say things like that, in Islam at least. And so if it is not possible that we say that Allah can be limited to a throne and that Allah would sit in a throne and that Allah would be carried forward in a throne, then what is the purpose of this? And what he's saying and what that school of thought says is that all of this is language that tries to relate to the human intellect by what they would relate to. And the human intellect relates to power in terms of thrones and thrones being carried forward. And so that's what Allah uses to present a picture. But to take that picture literally would completely miss the point. Um, And even in in um, in this school of thought, even the, the they say that. So I mean, uh, another part uh, that I didn't read is that we talk about that the throne. When God talks about a throne, it, in the same way that when God says, God talks about a hand, the divine hand, or that it has nothing to do with the human hand. That when Allah talks about a throne, it has nothing to do with any throne that we know. It, to imagine it as like a throne that we understand kings to be seated, seated on is heretical. That Allah doesn't sit on a throne and so on. Look cool. So, يومئذ تعرضون لا تخفى منكم خافية فأما من أوتي كتابه بيمينه فيقولها أم اقرأوا كتابي إني ظننت أني ملاق حسابي 
فهو في عيشة راضية في جنة عالية قطوفها دانية كلوا واشربوا هنيئا بما أسلفتم في الأيام الخالية وأما من أوتي كتابه بشماله فيقول يا ليتني لم أوتي كتابي ولم أدر ما حسابي يا, ليتني يا ليتها كانت قاضية ما أغنى عني مالية هلك عني سلطانية Okay, so this will take us to 29. So that day you will be presented before your Lord and nothing لا تخفى خافية nothing will be concealed لا تخفى منكم خافية nothing is concealed nothing is hidden we've encountered this before the kitab in the mean the book in the right hand or the book or in the right um, and the book on the left we've encountered this before and although traditional tafsir say the right hand means the right hand and the left hand means the right left hand as we encountered before that this is understood idiomatically the, the, the when you say means that it's good news yasar or shimal means it's bad news now you know so i remember you know some left-handed kid would say but i'm left-handed you know uh, well if you're left-handed i wouldn't be surprised if you get your book in your left hand but biyamine doesn't mean that literal thing it doesn't mean you're going to get it in your right hand or left hand means whether it's a good news or bad news. That's the point. Okay. So, and you notice at 23 and 24, um, we have countered this before that in the traditional tafsir, they understand uh, that qutufu hadaniya, that it's a reference to fruits being hanging low and you are able to pick the fruits without effort while in Sufi Astafasir they understand all of this as as allegorical and especially in Surah Al-Haqqa where it says Dani, it doesn't say fruit it just says its pickings are low so as in 23 in the study Quran it says low hanging clusters um, its pickings are low so in Sufi Astafasir they, they, they it is it is always what you drink it, you drink the water of knowledge and what you pick are the pickings of enlightenment according to who you were on in your life on earth so even those who make it to heaven the extent to which they are enlightened in the hereafter depends on what they've done what station they achieved and what they aspire for okay now, as to those who receive the bad news, obviously, the, the, the most immediate reaction is like when you get a really bad report card. 
is, I wish I never got it. When it's horrible news and you're confronted by all the zift you've done in life, um, you know, and of course, you wish that there was no resurrection. You wish that you would have stayed dead. And, but, so, the Halakani Sultania becomes it's very important, especially in Surat al Haqqa, but it is it's important in Quranic imagery generally. A Sultan is your power, and whatever allowed you to feel powerful. And the first thing you notice in the hereafter is the truth about yourself. And that is how truly disempowered you are. It is, especially in Sufi esque literature, it's said that nothing will terrify the, the pharaohs of the world as much as the absolute loss. You know, imagine when, if someone is going to go to a maximum security prison, they control nothing in the affairs of their life. They don't control when they wake up, when they sleep, when they take a shower, when they eat. So it is, but, you know, with, with no hope for the foreseeable future. And anyway, the span of time, it is said in the year after that span of time is, uh, is far exceeds anything we've known on earth. So despair is very real. Next we get to Take him and shackle him, then cast him in hellfire, then put him in change whose length is 70 cubits. The important thing to say about Sab'in Aziran, 70 cubits, is that traditional tafsir do exactly as the study Quran did. They, they say 70 feet or 70 cubits or uh, 70 arms length chain. And in some traditional tafsir, you'll find them citing a hadith that's not authentic, uh, which I was in a mosque once where a guy was doing tafsir of Surat al-Haqqa for a youth group, and he cited this hadith to, the, to that youth group that the chain will enter from the mouth and exit from the anus. And in some versions of the hadith, it's the opposite. Enter from the anus and exit from the mouth. 
And of course, you know, you can, um, although I was quite young, I, I, I told the guy that this was not an authentic hadith and he told me it's authentic, but he, he was wrong. Um, anyway, I wonder what the effect of, the, uh, of that upon the youth group was. But the important thing is that in a lot, in, in I, I'm not even going to say Sufi-esque tafsir because it, you find it in 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 many um, elsewhere. Say, ليس الغرض التقدير بهذا المقدار بل الوصف بالطول. So number one is that the expressions. 70 it is not in 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 arabic of the time it's like when allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the prophet even if you ask allah to forgive them 70 times allah will not forgive them it it's not the 70 the the that expression didn't mean the number 70 counting 70 it meant a lot of times um so it's it's the same one that when allah you know even if you ask allah to forgive them 70 times allah will not forgive them meaning a lot of times and so it says it means that it is a very long chain so that's one thing the other thing is what is this chain and here in Sufi Askhtafasirs especially, but also in, in others like Razi, they say that uh, relying on, on several other, uh, several things, uh, say that the chain is not just any chain. The idea is not just a chain, meaning just any chain. But a chain of al-akhlaq al-sayyi'ah wal-awsaf al-radi'ah wal-tabi'ah al-dhulmaniyyah kulluha salasul azab yawm al-qiyamah wa wa-tardu wa-hijab So that it is your own ill manners and bad characteristics and darkness of the soul becomes the chain that is wrapped around you. You are chained by your own darkness. And that these chains, the, in the Sufi escalation particularly, they focus on how these chains become, uh, prevent you from exposure to the divine so that you 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 don't see the divine you're not near the divine and that these chains it, it's like saying literally your sins will be the rope that goes around your neck it's sort of like it there is a story i don't know if it's true or not but i've heard it when i was very young in in a halaqa once uh and then I, I've, I know that it's been around, um, told about that, that chain, that it's supposed to be, it's supposed to take place in Maghrib, in, in Morocco. Um, 
that an imam was reading Surah Al-Haqqah and there was a young man who was um, pray, in prayer. You know, you're a young man who's trying to be uh, become re religious. And then he got to that Sab'una Zirah ayah, the, the ayah about the 70 uh, chain of 70 feet long or whatever. And that young man, upon hearing the ayah, fainted. And they had to carry him home. Um, that's one version of the story, is that he fainted and they carried him home and it, it just became, that, that's, that's, that's where the story ends. Um, there's another version to the story which says that the man was carried home and then his mother said, um, why did my son faint and what did you do to my son? And the Imam said, I didn't do anything to your son. I was just reading Surah Al-Haqqa and I got to this part and he fainted. And the mother told him what part. And so the, man, the Imam recited Surah Al-Haqqa to her again. And upon hearing that same part of Surah Al-Haqqa again, the man heard it again, this time in his mother's house. This time he didn't faint, he had a heart attack and died. Uh, and then when the mother saw that her son died, she died. She had a heart attack and died. And so Surat al-Haqqa killed the mother and the child. That is it. That's the story. What is the point? I don't know. But that's what I was, it just stuck with me. That That's what I was told. Version one or version two. So... You know, I've always, and so, of course, having heard it when I was fairly young, I always would come to, to Sabona Zara, and I would, like, say, why am I not fainting? You know, it must be that I'm a horrible human being, because I'm not fainting. Um, so, I don't know. Allahu alam if it's true or not, or it, if there is some truth to it. Oh, okay. All right. So, now, Surah Al-Haqqa comes to justify when it underscores those who received their accountability with the left, meaning doom, and those who are wrapped in the chain, two things are emphasized. Didn't believe in God. Second, And did not, it's not just did not feed the poor, but did not urge the feeding of the poor did not call for the feeding of the poor now for of course in a lot of traditional tafsir is just noted but in more moralistic orientations you pause and in my view 
the fact that this is in Surah Al-Haqqa, after Surah Al-Mulk, after Al-Isra, before the Hijra, when, as we said before, Allah is underscoring the most critical and important elements. It is no small matter that after talking to you about Ad and Thamud and Fir'aun and taking you through this journey, Allah underscores two things. Disbelief and attitudes towards the poor. So it's one thing if you don't feed the poor, but it's another when you don't even recognize it as an imperative. How about those who speak against feeding the poor? And not it's not just the feeding the poor, but it's taking care of the poor. How about those who in our modern uh, language you know, are the so-called conservatives of society that think the poor should fend for, for themselves or that society doesn't owe the poor anything. Or how about those who spend on luxury items knowing that there are people in need? including, of course, displaced human beings and refugees all around the world. It's very problematic. But we'll come back to this point at the end. Okay. And the fate, emphasizing the fate of punishment, takes us to 37. Then notice the Qasam of 38 and 39. Allah swears Bima tubsirun is the material world. Wamala tubsirun is everything beyond the material world. It is, and put bluntly, if your consciousness is limited to the material world, then your ability to understand Karim and this is the divine revelation of a sent prophet and the message of Al Haqqa itself. it will be deeply flawed. Then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells not the Prophet but tells 
Muslims and non-Muslims that if this prophet taqawwala alayna ba'd al-aqawil la'akhazna minhu bil-yameen thumma laqata'na minhu al-wateen this is 44, 45, 46. We'd have taken him, and I'll comment on this, by the right hand, and we would have severed his life vein. This is again an idiomatic expression. means we would have grabbed him. And exterminated his life with prejudice. And none of you would have been able to help him. This poses a question of why would Allah say this? Now, normally, when we find something like this in the Quran, we find an occasion for revelation. Some incident happened. But in Surah Al-Haqqah, there is no occasion of revelation, no asbab nizur revealed or, or reported. But simply the statement that underscores that not even your prophet, not even this prophet, not even the man that you follow has the authority to change what God is telling you. And I'll explain this in a second. Just bear with me. And we know and that we know that the the fact of life are the disbelievers, the unreachables, which we've encountered the Quran time and time and time again telling us, reminding of this. But this is the truth. So the conclusion is to uphold the the singular um, the singular I don't want to say it's not greatness but the singular magnificence or sovereignty of God okay so It starts out with al-haqqa, accountability, and accountability always means justice. And we said al-haqqa is al-haqq, al-haqaiq, al-huquq. And it takes us to those who sinned with miserliness, the, the, the people of Saleh, who didn't have a lot, but they were greedy. They, they didn't want to share. And it takes us to the people of Hud, the people whose sin is excess and corruption and luxury. 
and takes us to the people, to the Pharaoh, whose sin is tyranny. The result of all these three is the loss of the very dynamic that would lead to al-haqqa. Al-haqqa either on this earth or in the hereafter. The Sufis say the loss of al-haqqa individually, but, but there's no reason to limit it to the individual. But we must understand it beyond the individual. It is either al-haqqa in this earth or in the hereafter. Now, but to understand that if you approach Allah the way you approach human logic, if you think of God in human terms, and so you think that God, the way I understand this, includes that you think of God in terms of um, God as a, you know, like um, like a, 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 the president, like a king of a kingdom who cares about who raises the flag or who cares about optics or who cares about technicalities or rather than substantive morality and substantive ethics. You're going to go astray and ultimately you'll end up shackled in your own sins. What will shackle you is your own darkness. And your own, and you will never approach the truth of your Lord. You must understand truly what God's greatness, Azim, means. But you know what? It will. You will never go anywhere unless you learn to take care of those amongst you that are weak. those who are needy to claim that you have an understanding of God's greatness and this is of course consistent with when all the numerous hadith where the Prophet says that you, you don't serve God unless you serve God's people unless you're kind to human beings then forget about your whole claim of, of piety But you Muslims who are about to embark on this next very important step, understand you are not about the charismatic rule of your prophet. As the Quran will tell Muslims elsewhere, in fact, even if the prophet dies, it doesn't, put you, it doesn't take you off the hook. Yeah, it says, you know, is it that if the prophet dies, you're going to change? Here, not even the prophet can change what God has decreed. 
your prophet himself, the importance of this is that Muslims cannot be about a charismatic ruler or leader. You are not about the charisma of this man. You are about the principles that this man is teaching. And regardless of what stage in life you will be in, remember, something that Allah has reminded Muslims of consistently and persistently, there will always be people who will refuse to believe just because there are people who will defy you and say no it doesn't mean anything in terms of how self-secure you should be about your own path and this is the truth but it is all anchored on فَسَبِّحْ بِسْمِ رَبِّكَ الْعَظِيمِ the greatness, the majesty, the singular magnificence of your Lord. It is not an exaggeration to say that the path for every enlightenment and the path for all morality and the path for understanding and al-haqqa starts with فَسَبِّحْ بِسْمِ رَبِّكَ الْعَظِيمِ This is precisely why when you find, I don't care who they are, I don't care what turban they wear, I don't care what their, you know, insignia of religiosity they have on, I don't care what degrees they've earned, I don't care what they claim about their piety. If they are unable or they seem to be or they seem to be unable to see upholding justice and right giving what is due to people their due I don't believe that they have an understanding of because there are a lot of Sufis around there are a lot of Salafis around, there are a lot of Wahhabis around, there are a lot of Mullahs around, there are a lot of Shiyukh around, that there are a lot of Ayatollahs around that claim that they're all about Tasbihullah and worship and Ibadah and so on. But if they don't understand what Ihqaq al-Haqq is about, then they must have been worshipping something, but it's not Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's Surah Al-Haq. Alhamdulillah, Rabbana. Go. Assalamu alaikum, we're back. Oh. <laughs> okay, no, you know what? I, I feel bad. I'm just going to wear mine so you can take it off the whole time. No. Okay. No, but wait, 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 wait. wait. Like, well, let me do my little thank you because that was an amazing, amazing Surah. And it's so, you know, honestly, I mean, God bless the people on Interactive Group because you really don't feel like just the power of being here in person mm -hmm. until you've actually had to do it on the interactive group so that just you know like the all of you guys who show up time and time and time again it's god bless you because it's a big effort to do it and inshallah i hope one day you can come in person and experience it because it's, it's really different and and you know it's so inshallah 
You're the, earning the, massive hassanet. <laughs> and also on, on YouTube, people who show up, you know, time and, and time out. You know, so it's, you. it's the presence of the angels that whenever you have a halakha like this, there are angels. Yeah, you feel them. You feel so. them for sure. So, anyway, this was, I mean, what can you say? Every single surah is, is just incredible. And we're so blessed to just always have you say, okay, well, here's a traditional, here's the Sufi-esque, and now here's my take, which is just, you know, I'm like, I can't wait for, for hearing your take because I feel like it's just such a richer, more intuitive, you know, like, take on things. You just, you feel it in, in your heart, and, and that's, to me, what makes it really ring true. And then especially when you just, and, and at this point, and now we've heard a lot of these messages, you know, again and again, and have had the time to, like, see it in play in life and so when you hear it again it just i think it really cements like the idea of power and you know just like the importance of thinking about you know helping people who are oppressed or in poverty and um you know just the importance of these messages and um so anyway alhamdulillah it's just it's so beautiful and and even uh, like i i love it when you know you bring it to the example like you know when a when you're in training and someone, you go through the whole process, but then at the end, it's like, okay, remember this and remember this and remember this, mm -hmm. you know, like then it, you, you really feel like how, how these surahs played a role in their time. And so those things are so valuable when we understand them in our language and our time. So thank you, alhamdulillah. So does anyone have any questions to start us off? Okay, sure. Um, I'll just leave my mask on now, so. Can I take off? Oops, sorry. My question's about hell. <laughs> <laughs> because... You learn what it's like before you go? <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> so, hell is described in the... Else, I mean, in the last halakha, or the halakha before that, we described it as... as multiple times you've talked about it as, a, as the Quran talks about it, as if it's a living and breathing entity. Which, when we were going through the verses today, and also the whether authentic or not interpretations that are extremely disturbing of hell. Um, I, I thought of this even though it doesn't refer to hell in this surah as a living and breathing entity in, in that way. And so if God doesn't create evil, and if evil is the absence of God, then how do we reconcile that with hell being... A creation because I mean it seems like in the absence of something wouldn't be living and breathing as if it's an entity and what I'm, I'm thinking is that it seems like hell is not necessarily evil in and of itself but it's actually a manifestation of justice for evil people mm -hmm. it's a necessary requirement for the balance of and for justice to be a reality and so when we're going through the Quran I guess my question is that, that when we're going through the Quran and we're encountering these verses on hell especially for those who are not um, who are new to this and might have a, a difficult time with the descriptions of punishment is that like the the, the universal that Allah is compassionate so if the ends is not a compassionate ends then there's something wrong with how we arrive there is it that 
when we're thinking of hell, it's it should not be looked at in the terms of it being something that is evil, but is always within the lens of understanding justice in the universal term, both in this life and the hereafter. Can you just repeat? I mean, that yeah. I I don't know how to paraphrase that. Um, I guess, I guess the the question is. Well, it's not really a question, but, you know, um, if I, is, is hell evil, um, and I guess the, the, if I would, if I would turn that into question, I would say, well, you know, how, how do we understand the hell in relation to the co the notion of God and the create and and the existence of evil, and especially in relation to God's compassion and mercy. Um, first, th there is n nothing that would lead us to the belief that hell is evil. Um, uh, uh, you know. Um, it, the, God created, and, and from the Islamic perspective, um, Earth is living, uh, the Sun is living, the Moon is living, um, it, everything is living. We don't understand their life because it's different than our own life. And we don't understand their tasbih because it's different than our own tasbih. Um, and the and this is precisely subhanallah i mean uh, uh, especially philosophers and sufis when they talk about their desire for enlightenment they 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 their their passion for understanding these things eventually um Okay. Ibn Arabi has these amazing passages in his Futuhat about um, wanting to to understand the way that every living thing is living, and um, so he wants to understand everything from the an animal to a plant to the mountain, to uh, the moon, it, 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 how is it living? And he considers that part of the heaven, the part of the reward that Allah would, would allow a, a person. Um, but anyway, so that, that's one... Uh, uh, if hell is living then it's living in the same way that earth is living or a mountain is living or uh, we don't have the, the, the vocabulary or uh, the consciousness to understand in what way is it living. That's, the other thing is that there is no there, there, there is no there is no um, source or no reason to believe that hell is evil. Um, 
in the same way that the concept of a prison in and of itself is not evil. I mean, it might be that people inside of a prison do evil things, but the the very existence of a thing uh, is defined by its purpose and its function, and when it is part of the the instrumentalities of justice, it, it is not evil. It, it, it serves a, a critical purpose, the absence of which would possibly constitute evil. If, if there is no hell, um, then we'd have a serious problem with God's justice. And the, the, the irony is that, in, I mean, in, in my view, if, if there is no hell, then we have a serious problem with God's mercy and God's compassion as well. Because, uh, what does it mean for there to be a compassionate or a merciful God that equates between evil doers and and those who do good? Um, uh, now, God is merciful. In, in the sense that justice is merciful. You, you know, it, it is not blind justice. It is not oblivious justice. It is justice with equity. So, you know, in, in human, in, in earthly justice, justice often lacks equity, meaning that it has rules of procedure, and if you stick to the rules of procedure, you win, or if you stick to the evidentiary, if you stick to the game, you win. But God's justice is not about winning. It's about substantive justice, equitable justice. Now, of course, that has led many Muslim theologians to say that all those who go to hell have a bill to pay. And once they pay their bill, and there are even some, there, there are even a lot of schools that believe that eventually hell will be completely empty. But eventually, in God's time, that's a very long time. So, you know, only an idiot would say, okay, well, I'm going to go to hell and pay my sins. Because you, you might be there for thousands and thousands of years. And, you know, um, that's just idiotic. Um and even in Islamic theology, there are many that insist that while heaven is eternal, hell is not. Um, but going back to that critical concept that Allah, I, I think those who like, those who basically said that Allah in the Quran uses language that we can relate to. But once you remove the, 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 the laws of physicality, the laws of physics as we know them, um, there are, there are, it, you know, what does a fire mean in, in, in that context? Um, there, I can imagine situations where if, you exist day in and day out, 
confronted with the ugliness of your own, your own deeds. Even if you have to live an, a lifetime equal to the lifetime you lived on this earth, paying for your sins, it, it, it's horrendous. I mean, it's truly terrifying. Um, I think people just don't don't think about how horrific it is to confront one's own sins because we often limit our understanding of our sins to the way we think it affects things. But if you take the perspective, let's say, of a computer, let's not even say God, but a computer, and let's say this computer has perfect knowledge of how every infraction ripples through. That's truly terrifying because then you can see all the ripple effects of everything through the ages and sin becomes far more scary because there, there, is, there is hardly anything you can do in the existence that doesn't affect everyone else. You know, it's just the nature of it. Everything you do affects everything else. Um, and, you know, and I, and I think Allah took every opportunity in the Qur'an, as Allah has done in, in, in every revelation, to, to communicate to us that our life would cease to have meaning if it wasn't heading to the to the ultimate purpose of the achievement of justice. Um, once you take justice out of the equation, and that's why, subhanAllah, you know, I, I've, I've, I've said this before, but I've been, like, fascinated by um, how it, the... In, especially you find this in Christianity, the, the number of people who live horrible lives of crime and then once they're caught, they say, I know that I'm saved. You know, I've accepted Jesus Christ and so I'm saved. And the, it's so selfish because they don't think of the rights of the victims. You know, so many serial killers, and you hear that. Well, how about your victim? Well, I'm saved. Jesus Christ, you know, I've accepted. Well, how about the rights of the, the, the victims? No one, no one talks about that. Is that a merciful God? Is that compassion? I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't think that that's merciful or compassionate to just forgive people regardless of what they've done. Um, not in the real, true understanding of compassion and mercy. Just to start, too, I think it's, alhamdulillah, it's so amazing because we're getting like, two of these halakas for a week, but I feel like it also becomes so easy to take for granted the fact that we're getting just every single one of these halakas. I mean, it's amazing, and may Allah help us really internalize each message because when it comes at this speed, it's, you know, gets difficult to remember how lucky we are. Um, but so the question I have, I'm sorry, I don't know if this is as much as a question as I kind of, if there's more to elaborate on it, but I thought... The point that you made in your summary was really fascinating about the problem of thinking of God through the lens of, you know, optics of a kingdom and just, oh, you know, submit to God like you would submitting a king. And I was wondering if you can just elaborate on this because I know a lot of us are taught that, you know, 
Um, you have to submit to God because if you don't submit to God, naturally you're going to submit to your ego. You're going to submit to money. You're going to submit to a political figure, which all in all might be very much truthful. And I think that is a fact. But in my eyes, it comes at a very basic level of understanding worship. So, and you know, that verse, I think it was verse 30, um, 33 and 34, you know, is that why it says in this verse, truly they did not believe in God and they did not urge feeding the poor because mm -hmm. it's saying that there is no belief in God unless you're upholding justice. And that's what differs from the optics of a kingdom where, you know, you're just submitting for the will of it. But with Allah, you're doing it because of substantive morals and ethics. So I was wondering if there's anything more you can no, add to that. But no, I'm happy you're flagging this because time and time, and I think this is, I mean, it, it is not what what a lot of, um, you know, the, the, a lot of Muslims ignore, or it, in the way we teach them Islam, at least we ignore, and in turn they ignore. What is the first thing that the Prophet ﷺ does when he goes to Medina? He does the concept of Mu'akha, where he basically says, it is as if you are brothers, it is as if you are sisters, and the concept of Mu'akha itself, inherent in it, was the obligation for mutual care. And in addition to this, the, the whole institution of Mawadi, that anyone that comes to society that is, doesn't, ha doesn't have a, a community attachment, they get a community attachment assigned to them where that community becomes responsible for their care. Um, in addition to that, we know that so many people converted to Islam, came to Medina, and were poor, and they became known as Ahlul Sufa, the 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 people who lived in the mosque in Medina. They didn't have homes; they just lived in the mosque in Medina, and the Prophet and other Muslims would feed them. And it's remarkable because everyone knew that there was yes, there were very devout people like uh, Bilal and uh, and, but there were also people who were not devout. They they just came because they knew they get a free ride. But yet we don't have a single incident where the Prophet says to any of them, "Oh, you just came here because you're you're poor and you actually don't believe in Islam and as." And when you look at the entire, the details, that's why the way you interpret history is so important. Because if you, if you, I believe that if you actually look at the micro level dynamics of what, how that Islamic message got translated into practice, you, you, you find that at so many levels, everything translated to, um, everything translated to, quite simply, you cannot enjoy a fancy meal if other people are hungry. 
you cannot just simply, and that's why it, in, in at least the entire time that the in the entire time that, not just Medina, not just life of the Prophet <coughs> but even after the death of the Prophet, it, no one in in Medina dared build a fancy home. I mean, it, it is one of the most remarkable things is that they knew that it's just not what you do. What you do, if if you did that, you would become the object of criticism, like, why do you have so much money to spend on yourself when there are so many social needs? And I don't, it, this doesn't just happen, especially you are living, these are people who, as Arabs, <clears throat> lived a class system. And what they were accustomed to was a tribal system, an ethnic system, a class system. Huge disparities in wealth was anchored in their culture. And it is, you only ignore the reality that, that the Quran is what created this, this, this sociological experiment. Um, only if you ignore what the Quran says. Because the Quran repeatedly, you know, it tells you whether it calls it or calls it, sorry, Al-Aqaba, that it is what, what, you know, what earns you liberation in the hereafter, or whether it equates Iman Billah into a translation into good deeds. And good deeds are not some theoretical thing, but actual material difference. I think the way we <coughs> reconstructed the Sira, the, the way we retell the Sira, uh, is where you get we're acting as interpretive agents. And as interpretive agents, we either are focusing on moral dynamics or we ignore to choose moral dynamics. And in Surah Al-Haqqa, it is quite remarkable that if you take the entire Surah as itself, total, what you end up with is that Accountability gives meaning to your earthly life, and and accountability gives meaning to your earthly life and gives meaning to to what your society is about, and and more than that. It gives meaning to your belief in Allah Al-Azim. If your belief in Allah doesn't translate into... I was just um, reading this thing about uh, a sheikh in Egypt. And th th this sheikh you know, was supposed to be some Sufi guy. And, and uh, he's supposed to be the... the, uh, the um, Sisi's advisor, the, the president of Egypt, and okay, so you have, and this sheikh was 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 saying he wrote something about that, um, 
uh, he's praising Sufism and uh, Sufism is very different than the, the Ikhwan who are Kuffar and the Salafis who are horrible and uh, you know and I can't think okay so as as a sheikh as supposedly a great Sufi you don't prevent the execution of people you don't prevent the oppression of of the poor you don't make any difference in the morality or justice of, of your society you 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 completely lend support to the <clears throat> oppressive policies and tyrannical policies of the government that is replete with injustice then what 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 does what is the value of the sufism what is the value of this piety why would I listen to anything the Sheikh has to say? His name is Al-Azhari, something Al-Azhari. He's very well known in Egypt. And the difference between us and the followers of the Islamic message at the time of the Prophet is exactly that. They innately knew that that if you rub, if you end up embodying so much injustice, your iman is is pointless. We forgot that, and that's why we are in the trouble we're in in our day and age. Great question. Any more? Okay, because I want to get to this um, question here. Thank you, Hoda, for asking it. <laughs> Assalamualaikum. Could you please talk more about the meaning of Ayah 17 and Razi's interpretation? Does it refer to eight different forms of power or intellect? Please discuss it more. And then also uh, Joe's follow-up. You can throw it in here. Um, following up on Huda's question, there are both eight days in verse 7 and eight angels in verse 17. Does the number eight have a special significance in numerology? Is this noticed and discussed in the commentaries? Or does the professor have any thoughts on this? <coughs> Wow, okay. Oh, and what's the dhikr? Sorry, before you jump into that. Uh, uh, this, this one, I mean, uh, the entire Surah Al-Haqqah is, is, uh, is a dhikr. Uh, you could do a dhikr with Surah Al-Haqqah, the very last ayah, if you don't have time to do with the entire Surah. But Surah Al-Haqqah is really... Um, and, and incidentally, I forgot to, to, to say that... Uh, we again have so many reports about how often Surah, the Prophet would recite Surah Al-Haqqah in prayer um, and would, um, part of his wusiyya, part of his, his uh, like what he taught Muslims to do, that he told them to, to recite Surah Al-Haqqah a lot, like Surah Al-Mulk. Both of these surah are... Um, Okay, first the, um, can, can I, okay, can you ask Koda something, can, can you ask her if she's, if she read something about the, what the eight intellect, uh, meanings of intellect, or is this just a coincidence? She said no. No, she didn't. Wow, okay. Okay, so you, you, what occurred to you is something that, 
Um, oh, wait, Joe, this is a question from Joe and Huda. So yeah, Joe but no, I, 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 Joe's asking about numer numerology yeah. and, uh, yeah. Okay. But first, the, 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 um, yeah, you, you, the, the question about if, if, if those who are carrying, um, uh, okay, so there is a hadith that I didn't, uh, um, quote it because I, I, I'm, I have my suspicions about its authenticity. That says that um, there are four that carry the throne of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that in the final day, instead of four, there will be eight. Now, while the hadith itself is of dubious authenticity, uh, that narrative of four and then eight um, gave it, it it inspired a a, um, a a long discussion about um, the four quintessential elements and then the four additional quintessential elements for understand for a realization of a rububiya, a realization of godliness on earth. So, and I don't, and I, I'm not sure if I'm going to remember them, but it is al aql and nafs al ruh, al aql and nafs al ruh. So the the aroh uh, is the is the soul, the spirit, the intellect, and what's the force? Um, I forget. I I I'm I'm I I have very like I believe it is a shor or a mashar. the 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 ability it's the senses the the ability to absorb through the senses and I don't actually remember all the eight the, the but they talk about um, that when you are trying to achieve godliness within um, that. <clears throat> that you have to work at the first four and then the further four which are all derived from each of the basic four so in other words so for instance the intellect first you train the intellect to um, to think what we would call in our language today to think without projecting the self or the ego upon its analysis of what, what is right and wrong. What completes the intellect, the further step is an actual pursuit of knowledge. And so and they have a similar discussion about the ruh, they have a similar discussion about the nafs and so and that these are all 
necessary elements. So when Allah says that, that there are eight carrying the thrones, that this is all allegorical to telling <coughs> us what would be needed to achieve godliness in life. Now, the, the questions about numer, numer, numerology, the, the answer, it, it, um, I don't remember if it's in Tafsir tafsir al-Najmi, but it is in that Tafsir, the, the big ground, green one. The, I forgot the title of that Tafsir. No. Uh, yeah, it's called Gara'ib um, al-Qur'an wa Raga'ib al-Furqan by Naisaburi. And he talks about the numerology of the number eight. And he, oh, Grace spilled. <laughs> this is typical. Classic. Classic. <laughs> they know Alhamdulillah, you didn't spill it on me, though. Oh, no. <laughs> Don't say that. I might. Okay. Sorry. Numerology. Um, I'm not, um, I'm not a numerology person, so I wouldn't be able to repeat it or comment on it, but I just know that it exists and, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's really, it, it, the, the, the discussions on numerology, they always, they pull up the fa pull up facts that that I find, I mean, it's fascinating, but I've never gotten into it to be able to say anything meaningful about it. Okay, so now that you've just kind of wet our appetites, because I don't know if that was enough for you. It wasn't enough for me. <laughs> so I don't know. Can we ask for more, maybe, if you have a chance? Because this is so fascinating. to More about what? About the four and the four, the things that you couldn't remember. You know, I, 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 I was looking at the, at the, I had notes on it, and I was looking at it, and then I thought to myself, no, I'll just cut it out, and it won't even come up, I'm sure. And then, of course, it comes up. Yeah, I can look it up, I can, I can, um, I mean, wait. I, you know, it, it will take too long if I look at for it now, so I, it, I okay, would have to. Yeah. As a follow-up, because yeah. this is, will this topic come up again? And is it raised in other? No, not the number eight, but these elements uh, they do they do the come elements. up. Yeah, the elements do come up. Um, um, the elements is what I was referring to, less so than the numerology. Okay. Um, so okay. Um, so, yeah, okay, so he, here's, um, okay, so they say, um, there are seven this is from this is just from this uh, school of thought that I'm um, 
You say, Sufot, it's one of the Sufi-esque approaches, but it's different than the one that I was explaining. So it say, Sufot as-Sab'a al-Ilahiyya. وهي الحياة والعلم والإرادة والقدرة والسمع والبصر والكلام. So you say there are seven divine elements that one must understand: life, knowledge, will, إرادة, will. قدرة is ability or um, yeah, uh, like energy. Was sama hearing, was basar is sight, was kalam is speech. وفي الإشارة إلى الثمان الطبيعية and the eight, um, the the eight things that would prevent one from reaching the seven divinities. Or corruptions of the of divinity, and these are غضب, anger, shahwa, desire, improper desire, والحقد, spite, والحسد, envy, and بخل is miseryness, والجرب, cowardliness, والعجب is arrogance. So this is just one. This is. So this is different than the four and the the, the derivative four, but um, so where is the derivative one? Uh, let me look it up because I'm not finding it because I'm just stuck. But you know, it's just it's dangerous to to not. I don't want to say dangerous, but lists. When people make lists, sometimes they think that just by having the list that they've actually reached something. It is much better to understand the concept than memorize the list. The memorizing the list doesn't get you anywhere. Extracting the soul of the thing is what is most important. Can you, from last halakha, after last halakha, you told me a part about the yaktin tree that I didn't record. Can you? Oh. Oh. Okay. The the last halqa was surat the safa. Rami, do you know how to bring the? Yeah. What number safat? Sixty nine. No. Right. This one. Oh, it was thirty seven. Thirty seven. I had like a little a little things that I copied and put on the side when I was preparing for Safa. Is that erased or is it still no, there? No, it's still there. What, what number? Uh, 37, actually, yeah. 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 
Joe's 37. <laughs> Joe knows? Joe. Yeah, he put it of in the chat. <laughs> so, um, what I was, what Sharif was referring to is, uh, it's a, I don't, I don't remember what Sharif was asking, but um, there is a narrative about Shajarat uh, al-Yaqteen. If you remember, I told you that the um, Prophet Yunus, السلام, he God he God tells him that okay the the people that you have rejected your message for so long, they're going to be destroyed, and that he leaves town, um, or and and goes. And some a lot of reports is that he goes to a location. Now you know, just it's a matter of time before God's punishment befalls these people, and that when they see the God's punishment coming, they freak out and they repent, and so they're not punished. And uh, according to some narratives, this angers. The Prophet Yunus um, and that's why, in anger, he decides to get on a ship and go to a new land, and then he's swallowed by a whale. Then he is spat out and ends up on somewhere where a tree of yaktin grows, or the tree of yaktin exists, and it, it it is what saves his life. And in one of these reports, um, Eunice develops a fondness towards that tree. I mean, after all, it saved his life, and it it, it is. Um, but eventually, that tree dies. And when the tree of Yachtin dies, Eunice is very sad, and he cries for the death of the tree. And according to this narrative, that then Allah sends an angel that tells um, Yunus, "You are you cry for the tree that died, but you were not sad about the hundred thousand people who were going to be destroyed. In other words, you had pity for the tree, but you didn't have pity for the hundred thousand." people who are going to be destroyed and Eunice then realizes that part of his sin is that um, he allowed himself to get angry and vindictive towards the people that he was sent to. So that's the narrative that Shrif was referring to. Um, the other thing I, I skipped last halakha, um, when in Surah Al-Safat, um, I think, I'm pretty sure this is from Ibn Ajiba. So, commenting on, I believe it was, hold on a second. Um, at the very end of Surah Al-Safat, 
Um, which... where it says subhan this is the very end of surah as-safa so ibn ajiba says شيخ التربية لكنا من المخلصين بصحبته وخدمته فلما ظهر كل الظهور جحد وكفر وأنف واستكبر وقنع بما عنده من علم فإذا رأى ما ينزل بأهل النسبة من أصحابه من الامتحان في أول البادية قال ليس هذا طريق للولاية فيقال الله وقد سبقت كلمتنا لعبادنا المرسلين ولمن كان على قدمهم إنهم إنهم لهم المنصورون وإن جندنا لهم الغالبون فتولى عن مثل هذا حتى حين وهو وقت هجوم الموت إلى خلاخ um, So what he's saying is that there are people that they like that he, what he's getting at is that in Surah Al-Safat it talks about turning away from the ignorant. And he says that part of the problem is that there are people who say, if Allah, if Allah would just send a teacher my way, if Allah would just send someone that I can learn from, um, but then when Allah does send someone that they can learn from, Jahada wa kafar wa anifa wa stakbar means they they become arrogant and they they refuse wa qana'a bima indu min alm they become acquiescent or satisfied with what they know they convince themselves that no I know a lot and I'm fine and they, in fact, re refuse to, and especially, when do they refuse to learn? Especially when they see how hard the, the path of knowledge is. So he says, that when he sees how hard it is for someone to walk the path of learning, and to actually study at the hands of a sheikh or uh, they convince themselves that no I, I'm knowledgeable enough and they convince themselves that whatever the reasons are that and they turn away and what he's saying is that when Surah Al-Safat say um, to say salam and, and turn away from them saying that these souls, these people who are like that, they break what they promised Allah. And he's talking about especially teachers taking, walking in the footsteps of prophets. Say salam to them and just turn away. Don't try to 
get them to do the right thing because there is a deep flaw in their in their character that prevents them from the type of humility needed for learning uh, so I know that this that I've like I've skipped that and I felt guilty about skipping it since last halakha because it, you know I was getting tired and and I knew that if you guys knew that I skipped it I would be in trouble so, <laughs> so there it is Alhamdulillah thank you so much and on that note um, I think we've, we've gone actually over time but it was so valuable so thank you so so much thank you for everyone's questions and really looking forward to meeting again on inshallah on Saturday um, but hopefully we'll see you Friday for the khutbah. So we're, we're praying for Joe to be back. And inshallah. we're praying for Joe to be back. You guys hang on for a second. Um, and then um, that's it. Thank you. Alhamdulillah. That was wonderful. It's Who, already 10.30. Who's you guys hang for a second? All, all of them? Well, we, yeah, well, there's just a few. Handful. Oh, handful. So we'll just say hello very quickly. Okay. Okay. So because it's already late. So it's almost 10.30. Don't, don't hang up yet. Don't hang up yet. <laughs> okay, assalamu alaikum everybody. Thank you so much for another wonderful session. Alhamdulillah. Hey.